Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 40. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today we have special guest, Nicholas Bellatoni. And he's going to talk to us about JB the Vampire and all the fun things that they used to do to get rid of tuberculosis back in the 19th century. Get ready to think critically. Blokes, you will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I'm Sarah. Ken, how's it going? Things are going splendidly, Sarah. It's like summer in New England. It's had to be pushing 90 degrees the last couple of days. So we went from winter to <laughs> midsummer in like a week. I like that but you guys the- think 73 is winter. Well, I mean, it's, it is funny when you see it's 73 degrees here. You got people walking around in parkas because it's, well, it's so cold. But uh, we never dress appropriately in New England. It's all right. <laughs> That's New England. And today we have a special guest. We have Nicholas Bellatoni with us. He is the emeritus um, state archaeologist for Connecticut, which means he is the retired state archaeologist from Connecticut. Hey, hey, Nick, how are you? Good. Good. Thanks for having yeah. me on. Yeah. So people would, you would say that Nick is retired, but nobody would ever describe Nick as retiring. Um, <laughs> he's an active guy. He was, Nick became, how many years ago were you, did you become a state archaeologist, Nick? Well, I was a state archaeologist up at UConn for 27 years. So, yeah. Uh, so, and that was, it was one of the best decisions, absolutely, that we all made. I was part of that committee that, decided right. um and nick nick you still owe me some money for voting for <laughs> yeah. you i think that's awesome so many, there were so many of you on that committee i can't get to all of you you're coming yeah. up i think in 2018 all right, all right. I'll, I'll hang in there nick was absolutely incredibly active incredibly important for the development of a whole bunch of programs in the state of Connecticut. i mean this very sincerely he was absolutely spectacular and you will never hear a better public speaker on all matters archaeological than Nick Bellantoni. Really a passionate, exciting speaker. And I'm really, I'm just really glad that that um, we, we got Nick. You know, Nick, Nick these days is retired guy. He sleeps about, what, 20 hours in a day, Nick? Is that right? Yeah, I try to now. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's relaxing. I was so going to say, I, Nicholas, do you, do you feel like you're having your eulogy read to you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. He was, he was a good guy. He was a good man, Nicholas. Excellent archaeologist. Nicholas, what, retired, what do retired archaeologists do? Well, right now I'm, I've got two book contracts, so I'm, I'm trying to work on those. And as Ken will tell you, it's quite a, it's quite a, a job and uh, I'm not sure what I got myself into, but I am enjoying it. I'm also doing some consulting. I still teach up at UConn uh, part-time, so... Um, keeping very busy, but at a different pace, you know. And when I was state archaeologist, I was running around at 7 a.m. I was out the door going somewhere in the state of Connecticut. Now, 7 a.m., I'm drinking coffee, reading the paper, and my meetings are a little bit later now. So it's a whole there different pace. It allows me to do things I couldn't have done before. Yeah, that's great. Now, the reason we have Nicholas on with us today is because we are talking about a very fun topic, at least I think so. We are going to discuss vampires right yes i mean i thought it was really important I mean, here we are this archaeological fantasies podcast where we're talking about all this fake stuff relating to archaeology all this nonsense but some of the stories that archaeologists have to tell about their research are every bit as bizarre as jeb, jeb card would call it spooky as the fake stuff and this is real deal stuff 
Um, this is a story of Nick's um, uh, excavation of what turned out to be the actual burials of vampires. Well, I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, no, Nick, you're really not, though. They really were vampires at, as far as the people who buried them were concerned. Yeah. So, Nick, what I, let, let's just kind of hand it over to you. I will ask some, some, some general questions. But first, why don't you tell our audience, how did this thing come to your attention in the first place? I mean, somebody did call up your office and say, uh, Dr. Bellantoni, we've got vampires in our backyard. So what exactly happened? No, but, but the state police and the medical examiner's office called me because um, a colonial graveyard, a family burial ground in Griswold, Connecticut, was kind of accidentally uncovered by a sand and gravel operation. And actually, it happened like this. They, they stopped work on a Friday. Um, Saturday, uh, there was a light rain. On Sunday, two 10-year-old boys came to the gravel pit to play and have a good old time, sliding down the slopes. And, well, one slide down, two skulls dislodged and tumbled <laughs> down the hill with the boys. And, and they freaked right out, you know. And one kid goes running home to his mother, Mama, there's skulls in the gravel pit. And she says, get out of here. You watch too much television. So the kid went back to the gravel pit, picked up the skull, and brought it home to her. <laughs> Which, that sounds like something a 10-year-old would do. Absolutely. So she did, after she bounced off the wall, of course, she, uh, she called the police. The police uh, came down and roped it off as a crime scene uh, and sent the skulls to the medical examiner's office in Farmington. Uh, they gave me the call when they realized that these were not part of a modern criminal investigation, but in fact, the bone was old. There were cortical loss uh, and you could see decomposition. So they realized it was old and that by state statutes, they turned the investigation over to the state archaeologist. So really what happened was I was put in a position to um, rescue, if you will, uh, a colonial era burying ground uh, that was literally collapsing off a gravel bank. And that's when we came upon um, one of the burials that turned out to be um, quite unusual, actually. Right. Now, in, 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 because this is private property, right, Nick, where this, this um, gravel pit was? Uh, say that again, again. So this was private property, right? Yes, it was. As a matter of fact, yes, it was uh, uh, a standard gravel operation, mining. Uh, the, the miner was just very cooperative. He was kind of shocked by what, what was found and so forth. Uh, in fact, you know, the, uh, the first impression by the state police when they roped it off was that this might uh, a couple of victims of a serial killer at that time by the name oh of Michael Phelps. That was a famous and, case in Connecticut, yeah. Name of who? Can you say the name one more time? Uh, Michael Ross, he's the last person put to death by the state of Connecticut. And I believe back in the uh, early 80s, he uh, uh, killed about eight or nine women uh, in New England. Uh, and at that point, not all of the victims have been discovered. So they thought at first it was a, a criminal investigation, but it turned out to be a, a farming family cemetery. And that's why we were called in to uh, assume the investigation. So now, Nick, there was so there. We ordinarily consider, you know, think of colonial cemeteries in this part of the world as having nice, neat gravestones with urn and willow designs or cherubs. But there, so there's nothing on the surface that indicated there was a cemetery here. That practically right. Uh, basically, uh, there are a lot of unmarked graves. Most people could not afford a tombstone. These were hardworking far uh, farmers. What we believe they did have were flat field stones that were set in some cases only a couple of inches off the ground, but certainly not engraved. Uh, so the miners, uh, when they right. cleared the land, never recognized that these stones might in fact engrave markers. Huh. So it didn't look like a typical cemetery, so they just said, oh, just rock, so let's dig it all up. Not a, yeah, they had no idea until the skulls actually started to erode down the bank. So initially, this starts off as a salvage operation, right? You know, you say, well, we'll get some people in there. We'll excavate these burials and then rebury them. So what, what, what was so strange about these graves as you uncovered them? Well, a number of things. First of all, uh, when I arrived at the, at the gravel bank, I looked up and, you know, I saw six dark features coming down the edge of the cliff. And, of course... We recognize those as burial features. Um, and so 
Um, and at the bottom of which I could see coffin parts and, uh, you know, you know, human remains kind of poking out of the sand. So, you know, uh, we had a whole series of uh, individuals we had to deal with in that first row that were literally on the bank. So when I when I did that, I looked up and I saw some bricks. Um, and when we started to excavate down onto the bricks, it turned out to be a crypt. Uh, and inside was a, a, um, a coffin that had been laid down, row of bricks built around it with flat field stones enclosing it in the crypt uh, uh, form. Um, when I opened the, the stone to look down onto the coffin lid, um, I could see that the coffin was wooden and painted black, and they had hammered brass tacks into the lid of the coffin in the initials of the person laying there uh, and their age of death. Hmm. Um, I wasn't too thrilled because the initials were NB, and those are my initials. <laughs> this, this sounds like this has got to be a movie. This has got to be a made-for-TV movie with, like, Eddie and Lorraine Warren, and, the, and you're the guy in the coffin, and you don't, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I, I have a question about I'm the tax. I have a question about the tax. Is that a normal thing, or was that something unusual? No, that was a, a, a funerary, uh, you know, uh, option, if you will, for coffins in the late uh, 18th, early 19th century. You get into the 19, 1830s, 1840s, they start switching to nameplates on, on the coffins to identify. Oh, so there's nothing, there's nothing up to this point to make you... There's nothing up to this point to make you think there's anything unusual going on yet. No, other than my initials. That's enough. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yes, no, at this point, this is this is pretty normal stuff. And uh, it turned out the individual underneath was 13 years old uh, based on the the, the tax uh, number. And, of course, when we did the forensic uh, analysis of that individual, um, uh, it, it, it um, corresponded to to uh, the, the forensic work correspondence. So the young teenager. Yeah, young teenager. Um, next to him was another burial. Her, the initials on her coffin were IB, uh, and um, she was not in a crypt. But next to her was an adult male in a stone-lined coffin where they set flat field stones on end and bridged them, if you will, arched them uh, to enclose the coffin. And the initials on his coffin were JB55, an adult male, 55 years of age. So we think we have a nuclear family there. Sure. Where, uh, sure. Uh, you know, a husband, a wife, and adolescent, uh, uh, probably a son. Um, so JB is our interesting character because when I first saw those stones coming out, I went along the edge of the gravel bank, and it's very, it was, it was eroding. Um, and uh, the part of the arch at the head was open. So I peered in uh, and looked, and instead of seeing the back of the skull that, that I expected to see coming from that angle, um, the skull was facing me. And I thought that was quite odd because of the fact that, you know, um, he, he should be laying on his back with his head, uh, you, right. know, uh, you know, uh, on the back, so facing outward. So um, I thought, that was unusual. When we started excavating down on JB's crypt, I found two skeletal elements on top of the stones. That was a, a it was a lumbar vertebrate and a lower uh, arm bone, uh, uh, an ulna. And I said to myself, "Gee, this guy's supposed to be inside the crypt. Why am I finding <laughs> bones outside the crypt?" And when we opened up the the stone uh, arch at the foot of the coffin, there was the feet in perfect anatomical position along with the shin or tibia. Uh, but then as we continued to open up the crypt and moved up to where the thigh bones or the femurs should be, they were missing. <laughs> and as we continued to do this, we found the femurs have been crossed over the chest area. They've been uprooted, crossed over the chest area. Um, and the skull was clearly at this point deliberately decapitated. And That's the rib bones, rib bones showed that uh, he had been violated and, and so forth. Uh, I, looking at the uh, at the at the, the bones, if you will, just, uh, the leg bones, the femurs, uh, 
we could see a fracture that occurred. And based on the signature of that fracture, you know, I'm assuming that what this action occurred probably four to five years after this guy died. So, so they JB, dug him up? They dug him up. He was given a good Christian burial to begin with. Four or five years later, they came back, dug into him, rearranged his bones, decapitated him, and closed it all back up again. Huh. So they didn't like this guy very much. Yeah, that's awful. Well, the thing we, you know, we were like, we were totally befuddled. We had no clue as to what we were looking at here. And, um, you know, uh, my first hypothesis was vandalism, that they went in and, um, you know, took something from this guy. But, you know, as you know, Ken, you can't use negative evidence in archaeology. If it's right. not there, it's not there. And you can't invent it. So, um and, and besides that, all the other graves that we excavated, and there were a total of 30 of them, none of them had any material culture in them at all, no funerary objects. In fact, the only thing we found were um, shroud pins. Um, so yeah. there was nothing, nothing to indicate that this guy should have had anything. And plus, if they were going to vandalize, steal a ring or whatever, they didn't have to rearrange this guy like that. <laughs> we were really at a loss to explain this archaeological anomaly. Uh, and then um, one of the, the crew uh, said to me, well, have you ever heard the story of the Jewett City vampire? And of course, I had not heard that story. And uh, I said, I'd appreciate it if you told me. So I'm Jewett, tell City, you. Jewett City is another town in Connecticut. The Jewett City is actually a part of Griswold. It's, it's okay. a little industrial town um, by the mills and about, along the Quinnebog River. Um, started really probably in the late 18th, early 19th century, but it's a, it's a little town, um, mill town, um, uh, within, uh, and actually about two miles from where we found JB's grave, uh, in that cemetery. So, so here's the story. Uh, in the 1850s, um, um, a family by the name of Ray, uh, is going through some stress due to tuberculosis, uh, or what they called back then consumption. Tuberculosis was the biggest killer of adult Americans prior to the Civil War. And so what ended up happening was um, it was epidemic in New England. Nobody understood uh, germ theory. They didn't understand how diseases were transmitted. So what ended up happening is... Um, when they couldn't explain the diseases, one option um, was that maybe it was the dead that died of these diseases that remained undead in their graves and could transmit the disease to living family members. In the Ray family, a son dies um, in 1849. The father, Horace Ray, dies in 1851. A second son dies of tuberculosis in 1853. By 18 a third son has contracted the disease and he's dying and the family is in panic and they feel the only way when the doctors couldn't help them they felt the only way to save the third son was to go into the graves of the father and the three brothers and determine which one was undead and they okay. did that uh nicholas let's Hold that until we get back from our break because this is really interesting and I don't want you to have to stop in the middle of it. <laughs> Telling a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks. He destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back and we are still talking with Nicholas Bellatoni. And he is still telling us about vampires. I interrupted you in the middle of your story about the Ray family. And I think they had just gotten to the point where they had to go to the graveyard. Yes, well, basically, uh, again, what happened was uh, they they were unsure as to how diseases were being spread. And when the doctors couldn't help them, the churches couldn't help them. One folk remedy was that um, the dead who died of those diseases were um, uh, capable of leaving the housing of their graves and thus spreading the disease to living family members. So they went to the cemetery to dig into the, the, the two brothers and the father. They found the last brother to die still had, um, his heart had not totally decomposed. It was kind of cakey. And they took that to be a sign that he was still alive. And as a result, they broke into his chest cavity, removed his heart and burned it on the blacksmith's uh, anvil um, and then dug them back up with the idea of saving the first, uh, saving the brother that had just contracted the disease. But in fact, uh, he would die six months later. Everybody's got to understand, what Nick is talking about here is not some you know, crappy show on the History Channel where they're making a bunch of stuff up. This actually happened in New England. They're, they're breaking into graves, recent graves, and they are removing the hearts of the dead and, and destroying them, burning them in a blacksmith shop to, they thought that this would prevent the dead from visiting the, the lie, the living, and giving them whatever the, the disease was that killed them. It's amazing yeah. that this was happening not that long ago. Now, who documented and, the Ray family? The Ray family came to us from two newspaper articles at the time, who actually called it a, a, a superstition. But Michael Bell, who um, is a folklorist in Rhode Island and has collaborated with me for quite a while on this, um, he has over 40 or more cases in New England where people have gone into the graves of their deceased loved ones to put them to rest. So this, our evidence of JB was the first archaeological, physical evidence, if you will, um, but there's a great deal of historic uh, documentation about uh, this kind of activity. You, you must remember that this was done out of fear and love. These people were dying, and they had no way to stop the disease. Uh, in fact, um, you know, tubercular victims were sitting at farming family tables, dinner tables, coughing and coughing. Uh, and nobody's covering their mouth. No, nobody's. They had no clue. And so it was epidemic, and people were dying. Um, and again, when the doctors failed them, maybe, just maybe, this was the answer, and they were willing to do it uh, to save the living. This was done. This was not Bela Lugosi and bats going through the night. This was a public health issue, and people wanted to know um, if this would be a remedy to save them from, from death and disease. And so the moral of the story is cover your damn mouth when you cough. <laughs> I guess. Nick, was this what's called the vampire panic? Is that the, the, the term that was given to this, this period of time when people were really concerned about this? Yeah, it's also called the, the New England vampire folk belief. Uh, it, it, had, it had a number of terms. It was, it was somewhat clandestine. People weren't advertising. But, uh, <laughs> that they were doing this. But when you go into, you know, uh, town records and letters and newspaper accounts, you start, these things start popping up all the time. And in fact, um, there were doctors here, kind of what we're often referred to as quack doctors, who were actually advising, these are doctors, advising the families to go into the grave to determine which of their loved ones is mischievous, is spreading the disease. So, um, it's, uh, uh, I'm sure the churches were, were, were not happy about it, but um, this was being done more frequently, especially when they couldn't stop the dying and there was no medical answer for it, that maybe this was it. So JB, 
um, we we believe um, was thought to be a vampire, and they went back in to put him to rest. When we did the forensic analysis of his skeleton, one of the things we found were lesions on his ribs that are typical of tubercular victims. Mm-hmm. So he had tuberculosis, and that was part of you know the hypothesis of of the vampire folk belief. Do we know what what was supposed to be the function of removing his leg of his femurs and crossing them over his chest? Was do we know from the literature that this was a typical thing they did? What so that the guy couldn't get up and walk out of the grave? Yeah, actually, the, the literature is not very helpful, except in Europe. European literature talks about that, and they also talk about decapitating. Uh, the decapitation is a common form of uh, you know, putting the vampire to rest uh, uh, in Europe. And um, normally what we see here in New England is the burning of the heart. What I think happened was that by the time they came back four to five years or more later um, and dug into JB, the heart was already decomposed. There was nothing there. So they had to make a decision. Is this guy a vampire or not? In lieu of a heart, they probably didn't want to take any chances. So just like you say, I think the femurs were uprooted to um, keep him from moving, and the decapitation was to put him dead, dead. That's interesting. So how do you know how they figured out which family member was the vampire? Yeah. Right. What were the symptoms that they were looking for in dead bodies? Yeah, how did say, they know? Ah, that guy's the vampire. Usually it was the heart. They took that to mean that the individual was still alive. So now, if they found the heart, they took it to mean the person was still alive? That's how they interpreted it. That wow. the person still was capable of, was undead, that the person was undead. Mm. Um, and if the heart wasn't there, then the person wasn't. And I think that's what was the conundrum about JB. Uh, they got in there, they didn't see a heart, and but they had to make a decision. And I think that's what, what led it to that. Um, heart removal is, is, is very, very big. Um, um, there's a couple of really fascinating cases. There's a case up in uh, uh, Woodstock, Vermont, beautiful New England town, where a, a man was married, his wife, contracts tuberculosis, she dies like in 1790s. Within a year, he remarries. His second wife comes down with tuberculosis. So the prevailing thought in town was that the first wife is getting the second (laughs) wife. (laughs) And so 300 townspeople show up. 300 people show up at the cemetery to dig up the first wife to see if she's undead. And sure enough, (laughs) she still had a heart. Her heart was still there. So they took, they removed it, uh, and they burnt it, and uh, again, the, the second wife died anyway. You would think so they, with such a low success rate that they would have, <laughs> that's a lot of effort to not have it work. That's, and that's how desperate I suppose they were. That's uh, true. Good point. Something. I mean, again, you know, we could be... You know, we could be a bit snub about this in the 21st century. We got this wonderful medical technology that, you know, gives us an answer for death and, and the spread of disease. However, you know, think of it this way. If God forbid, you know, Zika or, or, or Ebola or we get hit with a pandemic that our medical technology cannot conquer, if you will, and we're dying then basically, you know what? People are going to do irrational things, irrational behaviors out of love and out of fear. Right. Uh, people already do that. So. That's, what that's what this was all about. But this is, it's an important point that you made before, Nick. As irrational as it was, if, the, if physicians are, are recommending to patients, you know what? You really ought to think about digging up your loved one and burning their heart because they're giving you these diseases. In a sense, that's not irrational. The doctor, he's the expert. He's the one that's who should know. And so you take the yeah. advice of your doctor. Yeah, no, that's exactly what was happening in some cases. Uh, um, you know, we have one account where uh, in uh, Rhode Island where a man goes to the town because it's a, his daughter's buried in a town cemetery. He goes to the town and he, he requests permission to exhume her to conduct an experiment. And of course, the experiment is to determine whether 
she's on debt or not. Uh-huh. Wow. Now, I, this, you know, I know very little about vampires, but the typical scenario is you open the you open the grave, you open the tomb, and if their nails are still growing or there's like their fluids coming from their mouths that they're actually ingesting blood, that those those are all folk beliefs and there are explanations for those that have nothing to do with vampirism. Was that part of the vampire epidemic? Were they looking for people whose fingernails were still growing or hair was still growing? No, they weren't exactly looking for that. But, but depending on the timing, when they opened these coffins up, um, if it weren't, wasn't that long after death, what they would see were changes in the corpse that they buried. In other words, just like you say, they refer to fingernails as being longer, hair growing. And as you say, you know, fluids are sometimes forced out of the mouth. Now, we know those fluids are forced out because of decompositional, post-decomposition right. gases. Um, and your, your fingernails can't grow after death, but the skin around them recedes, giving an impression of being longer. The same with your scalp. The skin recedes, and it looks like scalp is longer. So when they opened up the graves and they looked at this, these people were still living. Their hair is growing and their fingernails are growing. Oh my God. And they've got blood coming out of their mouth, suggesting they're feeding and they're bloated. So those physical changes that we can explain today were, were sometimes felt to be because the individual was still alive. Right, right. And of course, the, 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 uh, the progression of something like tuberculosis, Nick, that's, that's a pretty slow progression, right? The people get sicker and sicker over a long period of time. There's more and more pallor, more and more lethargy. And that, with, that fits, you know, the notion that somebody is coming every night and draining you of your life forces, but it happens over a long period of time. So I, that's I, again, yeah. That's exactly right. And that's why it was called consumption because you were being consumed. And again, yeah, you, you still ate, you, you, but you got thinner and thinner pollens, just as you say. It was like somebody was sucking the life out of you. Right, and that's right. What interpreted it. So, you, so the, this folklorist you've been working with has documented 40 cases of this? Yeah, if not more now. Um, uh, uh, if you really want to read a good book, uh, Michael Bell's um, um, the New England Vampire Folk, well, Food for the Dead. It's called Food for the Dead on the Trail of the New England Vampire, uh, and he does a he does a couple of uh, he does a, a chapter on uh, our discovery of JB. Uh, it was just republished by uh, reprinted, I should say, by uh, Wesleyan University Press. So if you're looking for it, it's uh, it is the the text for um, understanding the New England Vampire folk belief. And what's the period of time, repeat, remind us, what's the period of time that this is actively happening in New England? Well, it's primarily a 19th century phenomenon. Um, uh, and that's, of course, coincides with uh, tuberculosis being epidemic. Uh, we, he has found uh, uh, accounts going back to the 1770s uh, and some now even into the 20th century. But yeah. primarily talking about a, a 19th century phenomena. By the time we get to the end of the 19th century, we really start getting a better scientific answer for tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. A doctor by the name of Robert Conch finds the microbacteria and, um, and then sanitariums start to develop, you know, where people are sometimes brought to uh, the ocean, uh, felt that, that ocean air was good for tubercular victims. Connecticut right. had a number of tubercular hospitals uh, along our coast, uh, some of which are still standing. Um, right. So um, we start getting a, a more scientific answer to tuberculosis. But- Now we're, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. No, what I was gonna say, another thing happens at the end of the 21st century, and that is that a guy, an English playwright by the name of Bram Stoker, nice. writes a book called Dracula. And that changes the whole picture because now with, with that novel, vampirism becomes evil. It becomes part of, it's macabre, it's satanic. And um, so while Michael Bell was able to find um, uh, accounts, written accounts in the 19th century, by the time you get into the 20th century, you don't dig into graves anymore. This is taboo, this is evil. Right. And so the whole social network changes here uh, it goes underground, if you will. That's a kind of a pun. And it goes, <laughs> it becomes uh, clandestine.
but it's still going on. So they're they're still digging people up in the 20th century uh, because they think they're vampires, but now maybe they're thinking the vampires are more like Bram Stoker vampires and less like vengeful spirits. It's hard to say because it, you know it is coming out of a folklore, uh, a folk theory. Yeah. You know, there's a there was a case in Romania uh, about eight years ago where a guy is digging in a cemetery and he gets caught by security and they, they take him in and they say, what are you doing? And he said, you don't understand. That's my uncle. And he's, he's killing my family. I have to put him to rest. I have to save my family. This is only a, this is less than a decade ago. So ideas are still there. It's a folk idea, uh, but it's still maintained uh, within, uh, you know, various populations. Uh, two questions for you, Nick. The first is during the height of this, were there voices, medical community or the, the religious community that spoke out against this, saying this is superstition, you should stop doing this? Absolutely. Absolutely. There were there were doctors that were, uh, you know, saying this is this is uh, ridiculous. This is superstition. Of course, the churches were not very happy with it. And yes, no, there were there were people, you know, coming out and saying, don't do this. But um you know, again, when, when you're desperate, when your family's dying right. and getting no other help, maybe, just maybe, this was the answer, and they were willing to do it. Right. My, my second question is, you, you brought up Bram Stoker. Is there any evidence that Bram Stoker was aware of what was going on in New England and may have incorporated these stories into Dracula? I have read Dracula 50 times, and I do not find a correlation with what was going here. However... Right. Bram Stoker died, and they were going through his papers. They found newspaper accounts from New England and New York that talked about the vampire folk belief here. Oh, he was aware of it, but I don't believe he used it. He was, he, he was aware of it in terms of his research, but I don't believe he used it in the novel. He, he knew what was going on. He found the same newspaper accounts that Michael Bell would uncover. Is that right? Okay. Well, I mean, even if he doesn't incorporate specific elements of it, he's got to be aware of the fact, therefore, that this was an ongoing folk belief, folk tradition, that the dead were coming back and afflicting the living. And so just that alone, at some level, has to be informing what he's doing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think he, uh, you know, he, he put it all together uh, with the research he did to create that novel and... and uh, um, yeah, he was certainly aware of what was going on here. Right. So now, uh, JB was the only of the the only one of the graves that had been had been desecrated um, soon after death in the in the Griswold Cemetery. That's exactly right. The, the cemetery, by the way, was uh, um, started in uh, 1757 by a Nathaniel Walton. Um, he owned the property next door and bought this hilltop for the purposes of burying his family. We found a, a, a deed uh, in the town uh, attesting to it. But Walton leaves, uh, the Fulton family leaves Griswold around 1805. They they head out to Ohio when, uh, you know, the, um, the Ohio Valley was opening up and part of that, uh, you know, uh, migration of Connecticut folks out to the, uh, the Western Preserve. So, right. uh, um, they abandoned the cemetery. They sold the, 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 the farm. Another family, the B family, uh, comes in and starts to utilize the cemetery. And, of course, this is the one that we find the, the vampire folk belief in. By the way, we have never been able to determine who the B family is. Oh we, I was uh, just going to ask that. Yeah. Uh, so there are no we, birth records, no town clerk records, nothing we, like that. Huh? We could not find anything matching up those initials, A B uh, N B J B I B. Um, and when we looked at the town records, we had a number of B candidates. There were Bissells, Browns, Bishops, Burtons, uh, uh, even Nobel and Tonys. We didn't come over until the 20th century. That's good. All right, cool, cool. But, uh, there were so many B, uh, we've not been able to actually find, we have not found death records, birth records. We're still searching. Um, right. we, we have students that every now and then pick up the, uh, the mantle and, and uh, the baton and try to uh, do something with it. So far, we have been able to cover uh, specifically who the B family was. But Nick, not only do we not have their names, my understanding is that none of them had would reflect in a mirror. <laughs> ah. 
That's a little subtle humor for those of you. Who yeah, no, I, you know, I can't kill those bees. Well, did they sparkle? So, that's the important thing. When you pulled the skulls out, did the skulls also sparkle in the daylight? Oh, God, everybody knows that's not true about vampires. That's just <laughs> modern stuff. Well, so, so Nick, poor so Nick, you, you've got so you got this this burial ground with. Is it, you say there were thirty bodies, thirty um, graves. That's right. That's right. And you did you excavate all of them? Oh, we had to. Yes, they had to be relocated. At that point, there was nothing we could do. Um, uh, uh, other than to remove them and rebury them in another colonial cemetery that, that was um, marked uh, in the town of Griswold, but right. they had to be removed yeah. from the gravel. Just uh, a little. Hang on, little, hang on, Ken. Okay. Let's let's go to break sure. real quick, and when we come back, we will uh, finish grilling Nick about vampires. Soupcast is just the audio from select episodes at the YouTube channel of Archeosoup Productions. Mr. Soup brings you a clear understanding of the past in order to truly understand the world around us. Check out Soupcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Soupcast. Now let's get back to the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back, and we are still here with Nicholas Bellatoni, and we are still talking about vampires Ken, what were you getting ready to ask right before well, I cut you off? Was, I have a question, but first I was going to mention something that people might not be aware of. Nick mentioned um, this notion of, what is it, the Western Preserve? So that, yes. that Connecticut, Connecticut, Massachusetts, their Western Preserve was in what is today Ohio. And I guess, it was, I think it was after the Rev War. that they Now hang on. Actually, what's, what's the Western Preserve? Oh, well, the Western Preserve was a migration of uh, Connecticut folks that went out to... Uh, Ohio to farm that less stony, flatter soil. When when the king gave us the charter in the 17th century to create the colony of Connecticut, um, the, the the charter stipulated you know kind of latitude on the globe that we house, but they didn't understand longitude. And the way the the the, the grant was interpreted is that Connecticut owned all the land literally across the continent to. The Pacific Ocean. This, this Again, thin, we want it back. <laughs> this thin line going all the way across right. the continent. So when Ohio opened up, Connecticut folks were starting to say, hey, that's our land by the King's right. Grant. And they started to go out there in mass migration. We almost went to war with Pennsylvania over this, by the way. And uh, so uh, if you go to Northeast Ohio today, there are many towns named after um, people from Connecticut, and many of the, some of them are set up like New England little New England villages because oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, same people. The best the best story about that I have, by the way, is um, there was a, a young man by the name of Moses Cleveland who came from Canterbury, Connecticut, a small town in the eastern part of the state, also on the Cunabog River, and he he went out to Ohio with a group of of, of people and settled in a, a little. Hamlet, if you will, they started a little village by the lake. And he, we have a letter from him where he writes back to his family. He said, my biggest wish is someday Cleveland will become as big as Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> little did he know he'd have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How could yeah, he Yeah, no that? kidding, right? Yeah, but uh, no, that, that was part the, the Waltons of our cemetery were part of that migration. Yeah, I've been to, there's a town in eastern Ohio called Marietta, um, which happens to have the, the cemetery mound in it, which is in my 50 sites book. I've got to get that plug in, right? <laughs> and, but if you walk mm -hmm. around that cemetery, it's filled with gravestones that look like they came out of Massachusetts or Connecticut. And yeah. on the individual gravestones, 
person after person, these were all um, Revolutionary War veterans and their families from Massachusetts and Connecticut who had moved out to this to the Western Preserve and had established a town. And in Gravestone after Gravestone talks about born in Boston, born in Hartford. And it's, it's as if you took a whole subset of New Englanders and moved them en masse to the wide open spaces of, yes, the Western territories, which was Ohio. That's right. That's it. Yeah. It was quite a movement. And uh, a lot of people here thought that the farms were uh, going to fall apart because of everyone moving. But what ended up happening is a lot of the farmers started to buy up land. So farms became bigger here because of the fact that uh, their neighbors were moving off. So, Nick, so now you've got when as, as the state archaeologist, as a forensic specialist, you're excavating 30 graves. What happens to those bones? What 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 did you what 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 was the eventual end of JB and NB and all the B's and all the Waltons? What happened? Well, basically, uh, part of my job also uh, was to when these discoveries are made uh, is to try to make an effort to find descendants. If they're Native American graves, we work with uh, the, the the tribes. But uh, in this case, uh, with the research we had. Uh, of Nathaniel Walton, I started to network, if you will, with uh, genealogical societies and historical societies. And we found Walton family members actually as far away as Nevada and California that were descended from Nathaniel Walton. And so I interacted with them about uh, how the remains should be handled. And what ended up happening was they came uh, to Connecticut, to Griswold for a family reunion. And we had a reburial. the Waltons were, were part of the Congregational Church in uh, Griswold, and Reverend Bynan uh, performed a recommittal ceremony of Puritan tradition, and we reburied them um, uh, laying next to each other as we archaeologically excavated. So everybody wow. is in the same rows, laying next to the same people, and they were uh, uh, reinterred uh, at another cemetery, but with... Uh, you know, with a religious ceremony. So, yeah, we we try to do that for all remains. They're reburied according to the cultural prescriptions of the people involved. So you were able to find someone to rebury for the reburial that actually did a service in the style that it would have been done in the 19th century. That's right. Uh, the, the the minister for the Congregational Church, Reverend Bynan, uh, uh, you know, looked up his uh, prayer book and... Um, wow. You know, did it as close as he could, I suppose. But well, yeah, uh, yes, that's right. We, that's and we tried cool. it. Yeah, it's kind of a difficult thing, though, for me because as a state official, there is a separation of church and state, and I'm really not supposed to uh, organize a religious activity of any kind. So I have to work through third parties to uh, to make sure it gets done. Well, that's, got- that's silly. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, it really is. But that's now, silly. I'm sorry. Nick, Nick, here's, the major, here's the major question. These 30 burials now reinterred at this spot. Are there permanent grave markers so that these poor bastards aren't going to get dug up again? Poor little guys. Actually, uh, yes and no. They're not individual grave markers. But But is there uh, a family grave? This is a marker, but not a a stone marker at this point. A stone marker was never never put up. But um, it is the the graves are in an established cemetery. in Griswold, and um, they are mapped and marked uh, within the town records. Well, now the the actual question is: When you reinter JB, did you put him back together, <laughs> or did you put him in the way you found him? You didn't put him back at all. The family gave permission for us to uh, study him longer, and uh, so he uh, um, he has not yet been reinterred. He's the only one that hasn't been reinterred yet. Wait, 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 wait. Nick, what family gave you permission? The Walton family? <laughs> not the Bee family. Sorry, we don't know But we discussed it with the Walton family because we wanted to be sure they were comfortable. Uh, I think, actually, I think that's pretty damn funny. And you can have him. <laughs> He's not one of those. Right. Anyway. Now, but it's an interesting question, though. Were, were the Waltons and this B family, were they contemporaries in Grizzle? Did they live there at the, the same time? Do we know that? Well, you know, the, the Waltons, uh, Walton family, 
Mary, excuse me, Mary uh, uh, Bennett, uh, married into the Nathaniel Bennett family. And if you had a, you know, uh, if I had a gun in my head, I would probably say they are Bennett's, but we do not know that. We don't have, you know, we, we speculate, but we do not know that. But we do know that they intermarried with a, a family called Bennett. So uh, it is possible that uh, that's, that's the family, but we can't prove that. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's like a one in a million shot that somewhere in a Walton descendant, there's, you know, an old um, diary or something like that where they talk about, you know, the, 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 the trials and tribulations of the Bennett family because some you know, they're dying in great numbers. And you, that would confirm it for you. But, of course, the odds against the odds are long against finding anything like that. So one of the things we were able to do uh, uh, with JB is uh, a series of, of other tests now to, to, to learn more about him. And we were able to extract DNA from his skeleton. Now, what that allows us is markers that we can now use were we to get a family candidate um, to compare up and see if we could we can actually nail it down. So we're hoping that the DNA will help us uh, uh, find uh, the B family. That's so I, incredibly cool. I have a question though. How long are you guys okay? What what are you hoping to get out of JB uh, studying him and his remains, I guess? And how long are you guys going to keep him? Well, basically, uh, the, the remains were uh, we worked with some colleagues down at uh, the Arms Forces Institute of Pathology at Walter Reed Hospital, and so his remains were sent down there. Um, we have done uh, two sets of DNA analysis, but no, nope, we're getting close and. Uh, We'd like to find the family first and then rebury him, but if that doesn't happen, um, a decision will have to be made within the next couple of years. One of the things about the forensic science is it gets better and better science. It just gives us more techniques in which to study and learn. And so um, an opportunity because of the unusualness of this burial to, to do more with it, but he will be reburied eventually. Are, are cool, you gonna yeah. rebury him the way you found him? No, we will lay him <laughs> Appropriate Christian pattern, uh, which, by the way, if, if you don't know, is um, here in New England, we uh, Christians bury their dead in an east-west orientation with head to the west. So the idea is as you lay in the ground, you face the east. And uh, it is believed that on the day of resurrection, Christ will come up with the sun out of the east and literally draw you from your housing. So you have to be prepared for the day of resurrection. That also means when you go to an old cemetery and read the tombstone, here lies Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan's not in front of the stone, as most people think, but actually is behind the stone yeah. with his feet moving away. But that's how he will be buried cool. uh, in a Christian pattern. Because, you know, all these, these ads you see on TV for, you know, do check your family DNA. We, you know, <laughs> you, you can take a cheek swab and you send it off for a hundred bucks. And in all these commercials, there's always people amazed because they've always been told they are a certain ethnicity, but their DNA says something different. And there's one one woman who says, I always thought I was Irish, but I, in fact, I'm Native American. I, what I don't no, want to hear, <laughs> what I don't want to hear, Nick, is that, that you look at this guy's DNA and he turns out to be like from Romania. <laughs> and so he really is a vampire from Romania. Is, the, is there a vampire DNA? Because then you, you could just, you know, put his DNA out there, let people cheek swab it, and then like, I'm a vampire! I didn't know! By the way, those, uh, those in-house DNA uh, send your swab in are, are not very reliable. No, no, there's, it's all kind of nonsense. But, you know, the, my understanding is that, that, that you can extract genetic material even from something like the tuberculosis. So you can actually track the specific disease um, to its genetic um, variations, depending on geography or time. That's so, yeah, so I don't, I, I don't know if, if they've been able, if there's, if there are any, you know, bacteria left from that, the, the tuberculosis, the strain that JB died from, where that could be analyzed as well. But like, as Nick says, the problem is when you put somebody back in the ground, you remove the, any source of information that next year we're going to find, we're, we're, we'd be able to extract. And I understand there's a very sensitive issue, and this is beyond the scope of this conversation, but it does mean, you know, we lose stuff when people go back in the ground. 
You can have my bones forever. It's fine. Do whatever you want with them. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and, uh, exactly right. Uh, and and of course, uh, uh, you know, there's, it's a balance between treating them respectfully, but also. Uh, you know, trying to learn as much as we can about uh, a very unusual case. So right. um, eventually, um, he will be put reburied. Well, did you did you track down the strain of tuberculosis and ask them if it was okay to keep <laughs> JB out? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it, it, it's it, maybe the descendants of the tuberculosis bug. One one of the issues about tuberculosis is that the pathogen persists in soil. Yeah, and uh, could persist for a over hundreds of years, and we don't, we don't really don't even know how long. Uh, so one of the things we had to do when when we were doing the the, the Walton Cemetery was uh, I would send um, soil samples from the abdomen and chest areas um, and have them processed at state laboratories just to make sure there were no pathogens. That everything came back negative, uh, so we were quite pleased by that. But you know, tuberculosis is a little tricky, and sometimes those uh, those the, they could stick around. So no what bone licking at the site. <laughs> yeah, most most diseases like smallpox they die with the host, they, they, but uh, tuberculosis can persist. But did you? That that actually raises an interesting question. When you first were entering these tombs, were you? Did you use face masks or gloves? Did you do something to protect yourselves from the possibility yes. that there were live pathogens? Yeah, usually there's no health issue unless you're dealing with metal coffins because then pathogens really get escaped. But no, that, that's true. We did. We, we wore uh, surgical gloves and, uh, and masks uh, um, when we did most of the excavating. That Not all pleasant. of them, but uh, we did, yeah. That had to be really pleasant to try to do. <laughs> the, the other thing, Digging hazmat suits, yeah. Right. The other thing, too, is the possibility of, with DNA analysis by of contaminating the sample right. with our own DNA, you know, uh, breathing on it and touching it. The archaeologists right. could inadvertently place their own DNA uh, onto the sample, which could really, you know, if we find out JB's from Italy, I'm in a lot of trouble. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but he could be. He could be a paisan. Come on, Nick. He could be. In the 18th yeah. century? Well, it's a little <laughs> early for us. <laughs> But I mean, what a fascinating. But I mean, here's an here's an example where if somebody I think what and I'm not super familiar with H.P. Lovecraft stories and a couple of them, but this is the kind of story that if somebody gave me an outline, I would say, well, that sounds like a Lovecraft story. But in fact, it's really what happened. There really were people who their folk interpretation of tuberculosis epidemics was that there were there were Walking Dead. Who were spreading those that those pathogens and spreading those diseases to their family members, and it made sense because the family members were the ones getting sick because they were the ones who had been in such close proximity to somebody who had the disease. Right. So it's an incredibly cool story and a cool example of how a, a, a sane archaeological investigation is open to all kinds of interesting interpretations, and these guys actually solve this mystery. Very very cool. A great example of 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 archaeology in action. Well, and it's just cool digging up vampires. I mean, that's well, yeah. Come on. I mean, that's you had me at vampire. That's really all you had I, to say. I mean, yeah. I just you, you know I cannot imagine the expression on Nick's face when he opens up this coffin and there's the guy's legs, his foot yeah. are in correct anatomical position and his legs are crossed. Over his chest. Well, I see. I thought maybe they did that to him like immediately after he died, and I was just like, "Wow, that's that's rough. That is that's a up, rough yeah. way to bury well, somebody." But yeah, five years later, I can kind of see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, there, I guess. Soft, uh, most of the soft tissue would have been gone. They, they they would have been very easy to to pluck. You know, actually, when we, when you if you look at our notes uh, in the field, uh, one of the things we refer to is that we we look like we were looking at a Jolly Roger. You know, a yeah. pirate sitting right. across yeah. the bones, and uh, but of course, once we got into the vampire folk belief, we realized what the what was going on here. Nick, who identified the smallpox? I mean, the smallpox, the the tuberculosis. Where did you send? Was that the the um, Walter Reed? No, no. Uh, the, the 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 soil samples were sent to state laboratories uh, in Hartford, but uh, the, mean, the, the, skeletal, the skeletal remains were sent to Walter Reed. We so did a preliminary. Yeah, we did preliminary uh, analysis at UConn, but then we sent them all down to Walter Reed for um, more extensive forensic work. 
So they they're, they're the ones who diagnose the tuberculosis. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. And that, you know, just another little side point, when you go through um, death records and you go through town clerk records, it, you do reach this period in the 19th century where it's, per, you know, name after name after name after name, when the cause of death is given, it is consumption. Um, this yes. really was something scary and very, very common. And it's just spread like wildfire again, because as Nick said, nobody understood that there were people, people were people had these these diseases and were broadcasting them by coughing and uh, you live in the same close quarters with somebody with tuberculosis and the odds were pretty good you were going to get it too. Well, I just read a really interesting article uh, on Facebook actually uh, about how tuberculosis, the disease, actually affected what was considered beautiful at the time, mostly women's beauty, not so much men. Right. But like that whole paleness and right. the fever bright eyes and the wayfish figure that was all stuff that you got while you were sick and tuberculosis was apparently so common especially among the wealthy that they just decided that was pretty and so women were going out of their way to make themselves look like they had an illness i mean they, i don't right. think that they were logically doing that they were just like ah oh, this person has this person's pretty. I'm going to look like her. Oh, she's dying of tuberculosis. Oh, well. But it was also considered very, like, romantic to die from tuberculosis. It was, oh, like, the right? way to go. That's right. And, and you, know, you look at all the, the Gothic and romantic writers of the early 19th century. They, they, were, they all wanted or, in some cases, they did contract tuberculosis. There, there, was, a, there was a concept of that beauty. Yeah. Um, very, you know, it, what's, interesting, yeah. what's interesting, too, is how it really has this, this, this ripple effect. Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who writes all the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, his, I think it was his second wife, maybe no, his first wife, had tuberculosis. And so he kept moving around Europe to places where the doctor said, this will, the air here will be better, the air on this mountain, the air by this ocean. And so he needed to generate cash. He needed a cash flow so he could keep buying these houses where his wife would get better. And so he didn't really like, and he, got, he came to a point where he was kind of bored writing the Sherlock Holmes stories, but it was the thing that generated a lot of income for him. So the reason we have 56 short stories and four novels is because Conan Doyle would say, well, I need a bunch of money to put down in a new house so my wife, who's got tuberculosis, will survive. I better crank out some more Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, so we have very, that many because he was he was he needed to make he needed to generate income so he could take care of his wife. Well, I knew that he brought the character back after the Reichenbach, fall, Reichenbach right, yeah. falls because of popular demand. I didn't realize it was because his wife was also sick. So that yeah. things you learn on the Archie Fantasies podcast. That, yeah, that ultimately this was all about he 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 loved writing and he was really interested in writing historical fiction. Yeah, uh, but those those didn't sell as well. Uh-uh, no, they're very <laughs> well reviewed, but people demanded Sherlock Holmes. Well, and he I, wrote some like sci-fi stuff too, and it well, didn't the, go anywhere. <laughs> Lost World, which actually was, you know, pretty good. It was. A couple of movies out of that. But yeah, but no, he was, he was, he was, oh, he certainly understood that for him to, to make a lot of money, the money in the Sherlock Holmes stories was much, much greater than anything he could do with historical fiction. And so I think he grudgingly went back to Sherlock Holmes because he needed the cash to take care of his wife. How about so that? So, Nick, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us before we close the call? Uh, no, other than to say that, you know, that, again, this is not um, vampirism as we think of vampirism today in the 21st century with Twilight and everything else that's out there. <laughs> Even poor no, sparkly vampires. vampires. All right. <laughs> but, um, but this was a public health issue and people were responding to that. And um, while it seems strange to us today, back then... Um, it, it, it was a possible way to save their loved ones. This is Nick. Thank you. Thank you so very much. It's a fascinating uh, you, piece Pat. of research and, and a story extremely well to told. So thanks for participating. Yeah, this was great. It was really, really cool to hear this story. Yeah, no kidding. So thank you, Nick, and have a great evening. And uh, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, Thanks, thanks for having us. As one will call, 
know it down to dinosaurs. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.